This is the Bartholomew Town Podcast. Hi, everyone. Welcome in to another edition of the Bartholomew Town Podcast. I'm your host, Bill Bartholomew. On this episode, discussing youth sports in light of COVID-19 with risoccer.org's Matt Jerzyk. And this episode, it goes back about a month since we actually taped it, but still relevant today, youth sports, a major connection point, a major community point here in Rhode Island and everywhere, I suppose, but specifically with soccer, which is obviously a full contact sport, it's not one of the sports that's been approved, so to speak, for uh, resumption um, here in phase three. And you wonder, you know, myself speaking with some people on the inside of of the soccer world here in Rhode Island, they're folks who don't think it's going to come back anytime soon. You wonder what the Rhode Island Interscholastic League is going to do with fall sports. You have to think that the likelihood at this point anyways that we won't have soccer in the fall or really any sports in the fall, and that's not just my opinion, that's coming from a lot of insiders, but you've also got to remember that we've staked a significant economic development opportunity on the sport of soccer here in Rhode Island. Tidewater Landing, Brett Johnson, Fortuitous Partners, you know, in Pawtucket, the follow-up to the Paw Sox moving out and, and packing up and going to uh, Worcester and everything surrounding that development project. you got to wonder, what role does soccer play in Rhode Island's future? I think it's a significant question, so we get into that a bit, plus the economics of youth sports in general. So a fascinating conversation with Matt Jurisic here on the Bartholomew Town Podcast. Hope you're having an outstanding summer and enjoying this beautiful Friday here in the Ocean State. Thanks for tuning in to B-Town. Youth sports are essentially kind of getting into a soft return. Right. Um, that may also apply to adult sports. She didn't specifically say whether or not, but it's not in the context of competitive games. She's talking about groups of 15. You can have practices, scrimmages, whatever it may be. So, you know, the, the, there's no question that youth sports are an essential element of, I think, all communities, but certainly in Rhode Island, there's a major role and. I think soccer, probably along with Little League Baseball, um, by and large, sits at the, the epicenter of that conversation here in Rhode Island. In a lot of ways, soccer's king. So from your perspective, I mean, let's just get into how valuable a decision is that from the governor's perspective. And then what are you looking for on your end from a safety protocol perspective, you know, just kind of observing how this can move forward back to competitive games or not get into a situation where it's shut down because of some sort of, you know, over overlooked situation right now, I guess. I think it was a great decision. First of all, I think, you know, there was a, a Facebook group that had started that had quickly gathered thousands of supporters to reopen youth sports in Rhode Island. Um, and I think it, the decision was reflective of how the governor has approached this pandemic in that, uh, youth sports were looked at like a camp set to be open June 29th, um, but she had flexibility in that point of view um, and quickly made a plan so that youth sports could have scrimmages and practices and not, you know, not games, not um, where kids are tackling each other on the soccer field or are going to be in close proximity uh, in the middle of an intense lacrosse game or baseball game. But uh, I think it makes sense. Youth, you know, certainly I have four kids. Uh, they're feeling the emotional, physical, psychological stress of being homebound for months, the anxiety of a global pandemic and the fear of the unknown. Um, and to get back to some sense of normalcy, um, youth sports is a great first step towards getting back in the classroom. 
Uh, and I think, you know, my um, three boys and my little daughter are very excited to see their teammates. And I think from a safety protocol perspective, uh, I think if you go on reopeningri.com under the youth section, they already have up uh, a sample soccer field, for example, and they show where to put the drop off for the cars, pick up. No parents should be on the field. It should just be the kids and the coaches. Uh, plenty of hand sanitizer, for example, in soccer. Each kid should have their own ball so that you're not throwing in a ball from someone else, from another kid, and you know before they walk off the field, sanitizing their hands. Um, I think it's a great. It was a great move. We're very excited, um, and I think uh, I think there's a lot of excited parents around Rhode Island who will be happy to drop their kids off at a local ball field and and also have some time to themselves after being quarantined with their kids for, for several months. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, that's, and that's kind of always been one of the benefits of youth sports for a lot of parents, frankly, is, you know, that there's a, a, a child care element to it. And there's a great responsibility that comes with coaching and organizations here in the state, whether it's a, a, a local town organization or club, whatever it may be. Let's kind of, what specifically, I see you're wearing your uh, Providence City uh, jersey here on this appearance. Kind of give your background, I guess, in, um, you know, what RI soccer is to you in a nutshell. Yeah, so uh, back in 2004, going way back here, 16 years ago, yep. um, I was doing a lot of work, political work for SCIU District 1199 around their home daycare provider organizing campaign. And we were uh, in the middle of a lot of conversations at the state house and on the local level. And I realized that a lot of those conversations were just not being had uh, anywhere on the internet. I was, you know, uh, participating with daily coasts and a lot of online blogs and there wasn't anything in Rhode Island. So I started rifuture.org and it became one of the bigger political blogs in Rhode Island. And the goal for that was just to, democratize the conversation so that everyone had access to kind of the ins and outs of politics. And, uh, you know, it wasn't politics, wasn't a game for insiders. It, it allowed everyone to participate. And it felt like in the last few years, the same phenomenon was happening to me with soccer. I'd be on the field. I'd be hearing about this club or that club or this rising star, or that person's going to PC or that person's at Louisville. Uh, and no one knew about it. Um, and with the decline of media and uh, some really great sports writers um, fading into the sunset, I wanted to create an opportunity for parents to understand this really Byzantine world of youth soccer, those pay to play, how to know about camps, how to know about opportunities, um, but also just to celebrate a game that Rhode Island loves. We're one of the top 10 markets of, of communities in the United States that watch Premier League soccer. Um, that's one of the reasons that uh, soccer teams come into Pawtucket. We have great ethnic communities, the Portuguese, the Colombian, Guatemalan, Irish, French, Italian, all communities that love soccer. Uh, my family's Polish. We have uh, a small Polish community here that loves soccer as well. And so I created RI Soccer um, just to be a vehicle for people to learn about the game and to celebrate it. Uh, and I'd love to use opportunities like this to encourage people um, to collaborate with me. I'd love to get some more authors on, on the website um, and uh, get more people involved. Yeah, I have an interesting, my story with soccer was that I started playing. I can remember being in my backyard, my mom coming out when I was like probably 
I started in U8, so I was probably seven years old. And she came out and asked me, hey, do you want to sign up for soccer? And I was very selective in what I did. I, I didn't want to do Little League. I dropped out of the Boy Scouts. I dropped out of my church. You know, I was early on sort of like, and they sort of gave me the freedom to do whatever I wanted um, in that regard after trying something out. Soccer, I stuck with, even though I was a, clearly a terrible player. I'm a toe walker. Um, I'm not, especially then I wasn't particularly aggressive, but I stuck with it. I fell in love with the sport. I fell in love with the camaraderie that was there. And even as a player that once I got to the competitive level, U14 travel leagues and so forth, I came off the bench. Um, you know, I played JV even when I was in 11th grade, for, for example, I was not a great player, but I still loved the game and I fell into it at a higher level as a referee. You know, I became a referee when I was 12 years old. By the time I was 18, I was a state referee traveling around the country doing USL, um, et cetera. And, you know, paid my way through college. Then I moved to New York, paid my way as a musician in New York for a decade. And coming back to Rhode Island, you know, I started to, I, I refereed in, in, I certainly refereed high school and, and so forth, but I noticed that there were a lot of silos here in Rhode Island. There are right. a lot of different clubs There are a lot of different people, you know, one group of referees controlled one set of games and then this, that, and the other. It was a lot less um, homogenous than I had than it was when I'd left 10 years before. Is that the same on the, the, I guess, the competitive youth and adult side right now where we have a lot of different silos that something like your website could kind of bring everyone together under one tent? You know, it's sort of like the fire chiefs in Cumberland where they've got five fire chiefs. You know, everyone wants to call themselves chief, as Scott McKay would say. Is there a way to bring it all together here in a small state and, and kind of, if this is just my perspective, of course, but bring the community together, unite, and maybe then compete on a national level or do more to elevate Rhode Island soccer as a whole? Yeah, I think it's a great point. Um, you know, one great example of what you're talking about is, is, um, is these guys, Jason Rigo and Matt Lee and the team at Providence City FC have done a tremendous job of building a local club with a great local culture on a national stage, but they're forced to play in the Bay State Soccer League, which by definition is in Massachusetts. Um, we don't have the we don't have the soccer infrastructure here yet to support um, our great hometown teams. Um, we have a Sunday league uh, where Providence City has a has a, another team playing in. Um, but the Rhode Island Soccer Association has has some work to do. Uh, on the youth level, I think, um, you know, the world's been turned upside down. Yeah. The U.S. Soccer Federation just shuttered their development academy known as the DA, which had been going for over a decade, um, turning a lot of kids' dreams um, upside down. And uh, in the wake of that, so basically, you know, in Europe or in Portugal or in Spain, if you're a young person and you want to play soccer, you're not going to um, the Portugal Development Academy. You're going to Sporting or you're going to Benfica. They have a, a U10, a U11, U12, U13. So that's kind of what the U.S. is moving towards now. The uh, MLS, Major League Soccer, which the New England Revolution is a part of, uh, and all of the other MLS teams just formed its replacement, uh, an elite premier youth academy with over 90 teams, um, Rhode Island has one club that will be a part of that. Uh, they're known as Bayside FC. Uh, and there's an additional four Massachusetts teams, Vallejo, uh, the Bolts, NEFC, and the New England Revolution. Uh, 
And so if you want to bubble up and be a, a rising star in youth soccer, there's a pathway now, but it goes through the MLS. And I think, you know, what's really exciting to be um, a soccer player, a young soccer player in Rhode Island right now, is we have this new MLS Academy. We have the revolution. They've had an academy uh, up and running for years now. Um, we're going to have a USL championship team in Pawtucket. If you're a championship team, you have to have an academy. So there'll be another academy with that team. Then we'll have Revolution have a USL League One team known as Revolution Two, which uh, is essentially an academy team for U19s. And then just down I-95, Hartford Athletic is another USL championship side, and they have an academy. So you have all these vehicles for young players to strive towards, not to mention PC Friars, URI Rams, Brown University, Bryant's got an amazing soccer program up and running. Uh, so there's a lot of pathways for young people to get ahead. There's a lot of great institutions. Yes, there are tremendous silos standing in the way. And one of the hopes of um, risoccer.org is to have a conversation where we can start to make things easier, make things more accessible. What's great about soccer is um, unlike some other sports, you don't need a thousand dollars to buy equipment. You know, you need a pair of shoes and a ball or in Pele's case, a mango, but, yeah. <laughs> um, it's one of the most diverse sports in our state. Um, it's a great, uh, you know, the way I see it, it's like watching jazz on the field. You're constantly creating plays. Uh, unlike football, you don't have a play, go back to the huddle, call another play. You're calling plays constantly. The, the action doesn't stop until halftime. Uh, and I think it's a diverse game. It's an exciting game. And in Rhode Island, it's it's only beginning. Uh, we have a great future ahead. The beautiful game, indeed. Um, let's touch quickly on the USL. There's some developments that the stadium lease. There's some people who are scrutinizing that right now that looks like there's two major concerns that I've seen for, I guess we'll start with the negatives. Um, one is that Pawtucket could be on the hook if this goes belly up somehow. Number two is that it's going to usher in gentrification. That's going to push out, you know, we're celebrating the train station going in, in Pawtucket CF we're and, and all of the activity and certainly economic development is critical in Rhode Island. I mean, anybody who thinks otherwise is clearly not paying attention, but there's got to be a way to also to merge that's that coming in the, the, the team coming in, um, Tidewater, you know, the whole process and also not essentially annihilating the neighborhoods there. Do you think that's attainable? And do you get the sense that, you know, the community is ready to work with um, fortuitous uh, ventures, fortuitous partners rather, to make a really robust environment for soccer to go to in USL championship to go into Pawtucket? Yeah, so my, my kids actually go to the International Charter School, which is right on the, the location of where the stadium's going to go. And so absent the quarantine, we'd be driving there every morning and every afternoon. Um, it's a great part of Pawtucket. Um, it's right kind of at the junction of Oak Hill, downtown, and, and Woodlawn. And I think um, it's reflective of the diversity of Pawtucket. You have a great Portuguese and Cape Verdean neighborhood on that section of the city. Um, and, uh, and I think gentrification is always a concern when you, when you bring in a large development. But uh, there's a really easy way, I think, um, to, to deal with gentrification. And I think um, the mayors of Pawtucket and Central Falls and the elected officials 
um, Senator Cano, Nestlebush, council people, um, Megan Common, and 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 all the folks in that area understand that if you increase home ownership and you own a home and the value of that neighborhood, the values go up because of the development and the gentrification, your wealth goes up. And so really the crux of the gentrification argument is who owns property because that's where the wealth is generated. And if it's folks who are already there and you can increase home ownership rates on the Central Falls side and the Pawtucket side, uh, the development will benefit everyone. But I think it's something to pay attention to. Um, I think Brett Johnson and his team are committed. They have Rhode, he has Rhode Island roots. His wife has Rhode Island roots. And uh, I think from the beginning, you've seen a real passion uh, to, make, to create a, path, a creative pathway to make this work. I know there have been a lot of roadblocks. It's not easy to develop in Rhode Island. We all know that. Um, but he's really dug in and pushed it forward. And, uh, you know, I'm, I, for one, am very excited. When I, I worked for Angel Tavares when he was mayor of Providence, and we brought the revolution here. We brought USL here. We brought the N- NPSL here. We tried everything to bring professional soccer to Rhode Island. Uh, and we finally have a visionary in Brett Johnson who, uh, with Phoenix Rising, has created one of the best USL clubs in the United States. He had the longest winning streak in American soccer recent history. Uh, and, and he has a proven track record. So I think there are inherent risks in any big project, um, but it's a community that wants it. It's an exciting project. It's the right time. It's at the crux of a new train station that's going to connect Pawtucket and Central Falls to the Boston metro area in 40 minutes or less. Uh, so I think it's exciting. Yes, there are risks, but I think everyone's paying attention and, uh, and, and I'm going to make sure that the community that's there is going to benefit from this and not get pushed out. This is the Bartholomew Town Podcast. Hey, Bartholomew Town listeners, I just delivered the very first episode of the B-Town Insider exclusive content that you yourself can receive by becoming a B-Town Insider at patreon.com slash bartholomewtown. Our first B-Town exclusive episode for the Insider Club features Dr. Luis Daniel Munoz, who is a medical doctor, a member of the Rhode Island COVID-19 Equity Council, a former gubernatorial candidate with expert assessment of the COVID-19 numbers here in the state, the infrastructure that's been developed, the testing protocol, and where we're going in terms of school reopening. It's fascinating stuff, and you can only receive that episode by becoming a B-Town Insider. Again, the address is patreon.com slash Town, and there's other options to support the show when you head over to that address. Hey, thanks for listening, and now back to our conversation with Matt Jerzyk. Last question here, last couple of minutes or so. Um, a lot of people, you know, there's a, a, a pretty well, I guess it's pretty well known that college sports, NCAA, so on and so forth is big business. Youth sports are big business. And as we reopen the economy here, reopening youth sports is not only a question of, of recreation and entertainment and so on and so forth, but there's also a, a realistic bottom line attached to it if you could kind of just touch on that, the business of youth sports. So, yeah, I think the pay-to-play element of youth soccer is, is a real tragedy. And that's why I think it's incumbent on all of us to support programs like Project Goal. It's one of a kind in Rhode Island. You have like a living legend in Javi Centeno uh, and the program director, um, Darius Shirzari. Um, and basically, they take um, kids from the lowest income areas in Rhode Island – 
and offer an after-school program and then bring amazing athletes from the revolution, from PC, from Brown, and teach kids how to play the beautiful game. Um, it's programs like that that build a bridge between the opportunities that folks in wealthier communities have and what everyone should have. The best example is the revolution's latest signing, Damian Tico Rivera. Straight out of Cranston, Damian, he started with Project Goal. He then went to Bayside, um, played for the revolution, and just signed a professional contract at the age of 16. Um, and so, so I think the um, economic barriers for the soccer community are real. I think there's too many young people that want to play soccer that don't have real opportunities. We've got to find a way to bridge those gaps. Um, there are real programs out there like Project Goal. Um, who are doing the work in Central Falls and Pawtucket to give youth opportunities in after-school programs um, and also to learn how to play soccer. But they have a huge waiting list. Um, they need more resources. They need more capacity. If your listeners and viewers would do one thing, be to jump on their website, give them a donation. Um, but, you know, the, the, the recreation programs for Pawtucket, East Providence, Warwick, Cranston, CLCF, um, they're affordable. They can be more affordable, uh, but it's one of the most affordable games. But as you start to bubble up, um, there is a pay to play element and we got to figure out a way to reduce it. So more people have the ability to play soccer. Yeah, no question about it. You know, the last thing I'll say is my wife's from Brazil. And so when we go there, you know, there's nothing more exciting than to see, um, some of these games of, you know, kids who are probably nine years old playing with, makeshift goals and watching, as you say, the jazz on the field. And, you know, you realize that, yeah, the, yes, you can pay for coaching. Yes, you can pay to go to Florida and go to Disney and, and, or the Nike academies or whatever it may be. Those opportunities are there and they're legit. But at the end of the day, sort of like music, you know, the skill, the instinct, that's internal and there's no economic you know, reality for that, it, that's something that is just sort of intangible. So when you put a barrier up that's economic, it stifles genuine talent. And sometimes well, you're developing people who don't necessarily have the talent. Absolutely. And some of the older USA players from the 94 World Cup, et cetera, have talked about, you know, why did the USA miss the World Cup? Why is our national team not doing so well? And they talk about grit and the fact that if you grow up you know, in a comfortable situation and you're going to all these really fancy camps, you're not, you don't learn toughness. You don't learn grit. You don't have that, that really um, in unspeakable quality of when the game's on the line, you know, do you, can you dig down deep and win? And I think when, you know, you talk about kids like Isaac Anking from Providence's Mount Pleasant neighborhood or Damian Rivera from Cranston, both just signed professional contracts with the Revs, grew up uh, in lower income communities you know, those, those, these are the kind of stories we want to develop. We want to give um, youth who have the strength and the grit and, the, and that inner, inner strength more opportunities to play the game because that's, that toughness is what we need, not only on the youth stage, but on the national stage. 100% agree. All right, this was great. I'm going to put it up probably on Monday um, unless there's a significant, like if it seems inappropriate because there's like a, uh, some kind of looting or something over the weekend right. that makes it like we shouldn't go there. But um, this was great. I'd love to also at some point write a, a piece for your website, like kind of from Absolutely. the perspective of, of refereeing. You know, I love that. that's really how I learned this state. You know, my dad would drop me off to referee at the Lusitania Club, you know, in Central Falls. And, 
you know, that, that was my first window into the cultures of Rhode Island. So I'd love to be able to kind of tie that together in a way if I can. Have you talked to Frank Lombardi at all? No, I haven't. So state senator from Cranston, but referee of the year. And he's got some great refereeing stories. Really? Referee of the year. Wow. I've uh, I got to reach out to him. Yeah, he I always. Was, I'm on he referees right. the the, um, the high school championship games, and I think the Rhode Island Referee Association just named their annual award after him. Wow! You I can know. read it on risoccer.org. As a matter of fact, <laughs> I'm going to check that out. This is. The Bartholomew Town Podcast. Hey, everybody. Give me a follow on Twitter and Instagram. It's at Bill Bartholomew. And be sure to join the Bartholomew Town Podcast Facebook group for daily digital content. You can find it by searching Bartholomew Town on the book or head over to www.btown.stream.